the last episode of Hardly Working, Brent spoke with Aaron Wren about the challenges and opportunities facing Appalachia. Today, we continue to explore this region with Chris Steierwald, a senior fellow here at AEI. Steierwald, who grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, speaks to Brent about the unique culture and values of Appalachia, the role that strong families and institutions play in the region's success, and potential solutions to the region's challenges, from its opioid epidemic to its educational brain drain. He also takes us through much of the history of the region, offering deep insight into the region's identity. As you'll hear, Starwalt is optimistic about Appalachia and confident that the region can overcome its most difficult challenges. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Chris Starwalt, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Uh, well, that 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 name suits me great because my <laughs> objective is always to do as little as yeah. possible. So, yeah. Um, I uh, will go ahead. What were yeah, you going to say? No, it's it's great having you. This has been a long time coming, and but I think it's well timed um, as our I and our team at Vocation Career and Work began to look really seriously at some of the issues affecting um, regions of the country that I think you know a fair amount about. Um, so let's uh, let's start where we normally start. I really am curious as to. Um, how uh, an otherwise seemingly upright and uh, <laughs> wonderful person such as yourself wound up doing the things that you have done in life, which uh, are really remarkable um, in terms of your own career trajectory. Um, and I'm, I always like to drag my guests back to the, you know, their origin stories um, because it's not, it, most of our career paths are not obvious uh, to us at the time that they're happening. So I, I'd like to hear uh, about yours and how you got um, to where you are today. Well, I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, uh, which is in the northern panhandle of West Virginia, uh, a town now of about 20,000 people in a county of about 40,000 people. Um, and my father was a coal salesman. I guess we would now say an energy executive. Um, and we lived for a period of time in St. Louis, Missouri as part of his work. But most of my life uh, growing up was spent uh, in Wheeling. And um, I needed a job. Um, my, my dad had told me that uh, he appeared apparition-like in the doorway of my room in May of my senior year of high school. And he said, I hope you don't think that you're going to lay around all summer running up my tab at the country club and chasing girls around the swimming pool. And I thought, have you read my mind? Have I been, have I been saying these things out loud in my sleep? Yes, that is exactly what I had hoped to do this summer, sir. Uh, and he said, because you're going to need to get a job. You're going off to college. I went to Hamden Sydney College in Virginia, um, and you're going to need you're going to need to start working. And I, my father was a very gentle man, a kind man, and I thought maybe he was kidding that perhaps this would would fade. But as we neared the deadline that he said, and he he asked about it, I knew that he was serious. And the only job that I could find was a job that my brother had. Uh, he had met he had met a fellow uh, in a public house uh, and the guy was starting a hot dog stand and that I could maybe work for this uh, gentleman selling hot dogs. And I was, of course, devastated because nothing is as fragile as the adolescent male ego because. My other friends had good jobs, right? They had gotten on the state road crew for the summer uh, or they were doing something cool. Uh, and I would be doing the least cool thing possible, which would be serving wet frankfurters to my parents' friends as they walked down Market Street. And uh, or my friend's parents, too. And I was mortified. And then he showed me the hat and it had a dancing hot dog on it. And I knew I had to do something else. So uh, as I was leaving town, uh, I passed the newspaper building and I thought, you know, my sister had worked there when she was young. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, maybe this would be maybe this would be an interesting uh, summer job to have on my way to be a politician or be a lawyer or be whatever. 
And so I went in and I asked for a job. And Ogden Nutting, uh, who recently passed away, uh, who was the publisher of that paper, imprudently, but very providentially for me, uh, put me on in the sports department. And um, I loved it. Um, I had I knew that I was with my people immediately, uh, profane, uh, surly, uh, ill-tempered. Sorry, uh, that, that's not you, but go ahead. <laughs> well, no, but, uh, you know, there's a descri- there's a description of a newsroom uh, in Tom Tom Wolf, uh, a journalist uh, in uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. There's a description of a newsroom uh, that is so spot on. Right. It's just it just gets the energy. There is a um, a defiance in defeat uh, among among ink-stained wretches. There is a camaraderie. Uh, it manifests itself in gallows humor very often. Uh, and it is a wonderful fraternity and sorority. It's a, it's a wonderful place. And I felt it as soon as I walked in. And I understand, you know, as my sons uh, are adolescents themselves now, what an extraordinary blessing it was to get to know what you want to do when you're 17 years old. And I knew what I wanted to do from that from that moment forward. I knew what I wanted to do. College was something I had to finish. uh, But what I wanted to do was work. I wanted to get back into a newsroom and I wanted to do that thing because it felt so good. So how did uh, how did your dad feel about the relative merits of hot dog stands versus the newspaper? Well, my father was a conservative Republican, so probably hot dogs and and being in the media were probably fairly similar uh, in terms of uh, the the relative value to society. But I think he saw, you know, I've I've always loved writing, and I think he saw this was this was a place that I could that my my talents, my the gifts that I've been given about writing could could be manifested. And um, I, what I tell, I, you know, when, when I have taught classes, when I've spent, I've had the extraordinary opportunity to be around a lot of young journalists in my life. And they've worked for me and with me, and I've gotten to be around a lot of them. Um, if it is a lie when they say, uh, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Oh, you'll work. You'll work a lot and you'll be exhausted. Uh, and if you do it as a journalist, you'll be broke. Um, but if you don't love it, you will not have the necessary energy and drive to keep doing it. It will it will be too painful and you will abandon it uh, because it just doesn't it doesn't satisfy your soul. So the the finding what you love is important not because it will make it easy, but because it will make the hard parts bearable. Yeah, I frequently, I, you know, I teach this class here at AEI called More Than a Paycheck, and one of the one of the issues I focus on is look, you burnout happens a lot earlier than we think it does. <clears throat> if you don't love what you're doing, uh, it typically hits at about thirty, between thirty and thirty five, where people are, you know struggling to get out of bed in the morning to do the thing, whatever the thing is that they have committed themselves to, because now they've got families and mortgages and commitments that they have to keep. Uh, and uh, and uh, the money itself is no longer uh, enough to motivate. Um, so. I, I, I use the analogy when I talk to people about career choices. I use the analogy of you have three stacks of chips. You're at a casino. You have three stacks of chips. You have a hundred and they, you have a hundred chips, and they have and you distribute them across three bets. The first bet is your quality of life. Mm-hmm. That includes money, but it is more than money, right? Because it's the hours that you work, the people you work with, what's your commute like, how how is your how does this work affect your life? And by the way. Money will buy a lot of quality of life, right? Uh, it, won't, it won't buy all of the quality of life, but it will buy a lot of quality of life. Um, so you have the first stack, and then you have the second stack, and the second stack is the hardest stack because it aligns with your values. It is a reflection of who you are, and you can't let that stack go to zero because if it goes to zero, everything else falls apart, right? You have to be basically aligned in what you're doing with what your values are. And then you have the third stack, which is your future. And as you age, 
stacks one and three, stack two has to remain pretty constant. But you shift your bets from stack one to stack three. When you're very young, you can bet a lot on your future and you get those chips from your quality of life, right? Yeah, I can do doubles. I can stay. I can I can I can do anything, right? Uh, I used to keep a clean shirt in my uh, desk drawer uh, and I would if I ever slept at the office in a conference room, I could come out, put the clean shirt on and go back to work. And that kind of investment in the future and then as you cross the i'm 47 almost 48 years old as you cross the the waypoint in the middle of your working life the 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 chips start to shift sometimes they shift out of necessity because as you say you got kids to raise you have a quality of life that has to be maintained for the sake of your family you have to meet a basic medium and that includes how much time you're available and all that other stuff but your future has become less important because you're already in it. So I use those three chip stacks. Uh, mm. And again, that middle one about your values is really hard because mm. if you don't invest in work that aligns with your values, it'll kill you. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, I'd like you to expand just a little bit on the values question. What do you mean by that? Okay. So um, I am very lucky because I don't do any work that doesn't align with my values. I'm at the American Enterprise Institute. Alignment, check, green light. Uh, I'm at the dispatch. Alignment, check, green light. I mean, except for some of Jonah's opinions about food. Yes, it's a good alignment. And I'm at News Nation, which is an aspirationally um, fair news organization. This all So this, this all lines up with my values, and it feels good. But in our lives, we all end up having to do things that don't align perfectly with our values. And this is a prudential test. How bad is it? So let's say I had a boss um, one time and he was a, I guess you'd say he wasn't a crook, but he was crooked. Um, he had a, a deeply cynical view of what journalism and the news business were about and what they were like. And he took the view I think a lot of Americans probably take about the news business, which is that it's rigged, right? That it's it, and so his his point of view, a sort of a rather Trumpian point of view, uh, was well, if it's rigged, why don't we rig it in our favor? Um, enough of this rigging it that you know these other guys have been rigging it their way, so why don't we rig it in our direction? And uh, it was it tried my soul. It was really hard because it wasn't ever bad enough that you said, okay, I'm walking, I'm walking out. Um, but every day you found yourself with another test of, does this really align with who, why I'm doing this? Because there are a lot of easier ways to make a buck uh, than being a reporter, especially when you're young, or a journalist, especially when you're young. And every day you think, is this, is today, is this worth it today? And that is an extraordinarily costly thing to your soul because eventually, if you do it long enough, guess what? It goes away. That the angel on your shoulder eventually moves on to someplace else and quits arguing with you. And if you trade away the values that you have long enough, then you become a cynic, too. And, and that's not good for anybody, including yourself. So uh, <clears throat> thank you. That, that's uh, that's very helpful. Uh, I, I think I've had the good fortune of almost always working for people with pretty high integrity about what they were doing. And so that, that rolls downhill, you know, either for good or ill, it rolls downhill. If you've got some, if you've got people who are basically uh, in it for the right reasons, it's a lot easier to, to work for them. And let me, let me just expand on that to say, Mm -hmm. you will not go wrong just as you won't go wrong. Hiring, uh, people based on character and, and what you think about them as people, neither will you go wrong working for people who you think are people of high character. That's right? extremely important point. And so I know you've all live in Robert Doerr, uh, Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, Sherry Gretsch. Like I kn- I'm going where the good people are and lining up next to them and picking your tribe. And that's mm. really important. Mm. Yeah. So let's, I'd be interested in getting your perspective on this question. It's something that uh, I'm grappling with um, and thinking about. In regions of the country like Appalachia, um, how prevalent do you think, uh, well, 
I, I'm not I'm not saying that it's so much more prevalent elsewhere. I think it manif- this problem of sort of selecting jobs for the wrong reasons is everywhere. But talk about the particular challenges you see. Uh, uh, maybe what you saw as a young person entering, um, you know, making decisions about their future that took them away from uh, the culture that they were raised in. Um, because I see this a lot, uh, actually, with with kids who uh, have difficulty finding the support that they need within their communities of origin uh, to make uh to go on an adventure uh in their own lives well very well put um you know we i've I've experienced a lot of frustration of late um with the uh princeton uh demographers uh and i'm drawing a blank it's a husband and wife team Uh, yeah uh, angus and deaton yeah yeah and i've had a lot of frustration with that because when their research surfaced to me in outside the academic community in 2015 2016 and it was to explain donald trump right this is like ah there was a washington post headline that said death predicts where donald trump will win votes and you're like huh and the 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 takeaway for the american elite was basically that where i'm from The reason that they're voting for Donald Trump and the reason they're doing these things is because of deaths of despair, that people are living with such deep and profound despair that they have become hopeless. And there has been a lot of good research to counter some of the arguments uh, that those researchers have made, uh, particularly talking about the unique consequences of opioids uh, and how Appalachia, because of having so many physically demanding jobs, right? So mining and timbering are among the most physically punishing jobs that you can have. Uh, And you also did have a culture that was already, uh, whether you can take it back to moonshining, you can take it back to uh, growing reefer, uh, but that was uh, already, I mean, the Whiskey Rebellion was a thing um, that that already had a a folk way around um, drugs of escape. So you take those things and you dump oxycotton into it and kablooey and that a lot of the deaths of despair can be explained by the introduction of a powerful potent new drug that then manifests itself uh inevitably tragically into heroin um and my major beef though was it's not been good for a long time hmm. right the 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 problems that are endemic in Appalachia have been that way since the 1970s, right? Um, West Virginia is the only state that is entirely within Appalachia. Other states are coastal states that also have Appalachian parts or they're uh, mid-south states that have Appalachian parts or they're deep south states. West Virginia is the only state that is entirely within Appalachia. And the population of West Virginia has been basically static since the 1960s. So what you had was uh, a place in America that was sparsely populated because the, the terrain is not good for farming, nor is it good for building large scale industry, uh, except for on the Ohio River. There, it's just not it's not conducive to that. And because of coal and timber and now natural gas, you had a bunch of people move in. And then you know what they did? They left or their grandchildren left and they died. And West Virginia's population went back down to the basic number where it was. That phenomenon happened in the 1960s and into the 1970s. The um, idea that this was new, both parties, and I'm sorry to push this conversation in a political direction. I will come back and talk about the, the, the family stuff at, as much as you want. But I observe things through a political lens. When I was a kid, it was the Democratic Party that said the steel mills are coming back. The coal mines are coming back. 
We're bringing back West Virginia has the greatest workforce in the world. No, we don't. Uh, And we're bringing them. We're bringing those jobs back. No, you aren't. You are not bringing those jobs back. But it was Democrats, right? Jay Rockefeller and Robert Byrd and those folks who were uh, the leadership in West Virginia. And by the way, for the Democratic Party through Appalachia and the industrial Midwest, Democrats had the whip hand for all of those decades. And the message was we're bringing it back. And then I got to watch the lane shift. And Democrats said, well, we're not bringing those jobs back because those are bad jobs. Right. <laughs> did did West Virginia actually did West Virginia Democrats actually end up saying that or was that just oh, the, the National Democratic Party? No, the West Virginia's Democratic Party was arranged around the idea of industrial policy that would restore the might. No, I, I, what I'm asking is, did they say yeah. these jobs are not coming back or did they just stay on that? Line oh, they stayed what, on message. Jay yeah. Rockefeller. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I can't tell yeah. you how many. Uh, industrial policy kind of press conferences and all of that. It's coming back, right? And that was that was very clearly the message. And it was a lie then. And it's a lie now that it, it has switched parties because mm-hmm. what the Democratic Party nationally did was it said, well, we don't actually want these jobs. These are bad jobs. Mining jobs are bad jobs. Steel jobs are bad jobs. Aluminum jobs are bad jobs. These are dirty jobs. And these are bad for the environment. And we have to transition away. So they, as they turn their back on those voters and they turn their back on those jobs, they imagined a future in which places like West Virginia, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Kentucky were not essential, right? These were, were no longer these places that had been part of the Democratic Party's um, core strength since the 1930s were no longer to be considered, right? And the Republican Party filled the vacuum. And when they filled the vacuum, they took up the same message. Mm -hmm. It's coming back. We're going to do it. It's going to be the biggest, strongest, greatest. We're bringing these manufacturing jobs back. You're not going to bring those manufacturing jobs back. That's not what people, you know, the, the challenge in a place like West Virginia. So you have a handful of states in the United States. Kentucky is there, but West Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, uh, where you have hard, you cannot dynamite the poverty out, right? Where you have these places where you have large numbers of people with low educational attainment levels and um, ill health, and uh, an old median age. And, you know, the the prosperity is not coming to McDowell County, West Virginia. Uh, that's that's not in the future. And one of my frustrations, uh, that doesn't mean the good life can't be found in McDowell County, West Virginia, but it's not going to be a boom town like it was in the 1940s. Again, it's not that's not going to happen. And the frustration for me as an Appalachian American uh, listening to the politic, American politics is the fundamental dishonesty um, that a one kind of work is better than another kind of work and b that uh, that it's coming back and that somehow this can be that that we can revert to the past. That's not going to happen. And uh, it frustrates me to see how often politicians abuse it. Yeah, because it's not just rhetorical uh, to say, uh, you know, we're going to bring these jobs back. We end up uh, adopting policies that are intended to do that. And what that does is slow the transition for those communities, the potential transition to something new. Yeah. Um, uh, I won't say better, but uh, I, well, I could say better. I mean, I, uh, some of those jobs, I mean, yeah, I, some of those are hard, dirty, dangerous jobs that inflict a lot of costs uh, on people. I have gotten, Uh, I've gotten to go in a bunch of coal mines in my life and it can be exciting because it's dangerous mm-hmm. uh and those those dudes love kind of love how dangerous it is yeah uh a man trip is a little car that drives through a deep mine and if you ever get the chance to ride in what they call low coal so that's 40 45 inches uh, uh, uh where that's all that's all the all the depth that there is and you lay back in this man trip and they go zooming 35 40 miles an hour whipping through these dark blind turns. These guys love it, right? Because it's 
it's cool, right? It's cool. It's macho. It's awesome. Um, but it's also really dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's really, really dangerous work. And um, the idea that p- part of the problem vocationally in Appalachia and in West mm-hmm. Virginia, and I, I heard it. I, I hadn't realized it, but I heard it. There was, uh, at News Nation, one of our reporters had interviewed a um, striker from uh, a, a UAW job. And he was talking disdainfully about hamburger flippers. We're not hamburger flippers. And it like connected with it like a live wire to hearing steelworkers and hearing coal miners talk about with the dripping with scorn, right, about hamburger stand wages. And that's a hamburger flipper job. And I'm like, thinking about a guy who is standing near a uh, a blast furnace uh sweating himself <laughs> so that he has to take salt tablets um so that he can be on the floor uh as this steel is being poured i would i mean I, hamburgers sound pretty good to me at that point but i'm not one of those guys and the um the the love of and the mystique of and the um prioritization of physically dangerous hard jobs um is cool uh i like mike rose show uh i like i like the idea right where we should celebrate these men and women who and that includes nursing that includes a lot of stuff where they're just tough jobs and you need to be a tough human being to do these jobs i dig it but in appalachia that has led to difficult places, including if you're if the economy, if you think about where West Virginia is farther north than Philadelphia, farther south than Richmond, farther east than Buffalo, farther west than Detroit, this huge, massive territory in the best location in the country, basically right in the middle with with equal distance, all the population centers. West Virginia could do a lot of things. You could do a lot of things uh, in and with West Virginia. But if there's a stigma against information work and knowledge work and uh, a fetishization of physically dangerous work and uh, physically challenging work, that's going to make it hard. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that that brings us right back to where we started on this question, which is uh, that valor. Let's not call it fetishization let's call it valorization of much better uh of manual labor uh and um combined with a, a very strong um independence independent streak kind of individual sort of hyper individualistic uh in a way when you think about the way that um uh, you know our our approach the approach of people in appalachia and not just in appalachia but uh, you know, both, uh, you know, valorizing these jobs and this idea that it's the rugged individual that matters, um, th- that those two things can really bookend somebody into a, into a, you know, uh, a very, uh, a life with very few options. Um, and, uh, so I'm curious about that, you know, like, how do you think about how these sort of cultural characteristics of people in Appalachia combine with limited economic opportunity to sort of, is that what's holding the region back? Do you think, uh, my my family has been in uh, North America for centuries, has been in uh, here for a long time. And my father was the first person to get a four year college degree. Now, you've got to really do something special in this country to hang around since before the founding. And nobody ever managed to get rich. That's tough, right? You just figure by sheer luck at some point it would it would have worked out. You know, somebody had bought a share of Coca-Cola stock or something. Um, but. The so uh, um, our our colleague uh, Michael Barone refers to it as the Jacksonian belt. I refer to it as the hillbilly firewall. Mm. Um, And this is a um, L shaped line that goes from western Pennsylvania. uh, Speaking of the whiskey rebellion uh, up to Lake Erie, 
through Western Pennsylvania, all of West Virginia, Western Maryland, uh, Western Virginia, uh, all of Kentucky, most of Tennessee, and then over a little bit into Arkansas. And these are people who, you know, the uh, <laughs> the um, I am uh, ethnically Presbyterian uh, and the I'm sorry. And the uh, the Presbyterian Church did not have a name initially except to be called dissenters. Right. Uh, and if you go to Williamsburg, you can see here's this beautiful with a big rose window of the, I guess, the Church of England, uh, High Church Cathedral in Williamsburg. And right near it is a clabbered, white, squat building. And that was the church for the dissenters. Those were the, and as we would say in West Virginia, the againers. Uh, the people who are against, arranged against the dominant power structure. And um, my ancestors came, on my father's side, my ancestors came, some were English, some were Welsh, um, but Scots-Irish, right? Uh, there's a, a, a little German, the Steyerwald used to be Steigerwald, uh, but they found them a couple of, those two brothers found them a couple of good hillbilly women uh, down in North Carolina, and uh, that, that, was, that was the mainstay. And the, the attitude and the idea of people whose lives are arranged around rugged individualism, uh, a former Senator Jim Webb's book uh, called Born, Born Fighting, Fighting. Yeah. about the Scots-Irish is uh, aligns very much with my experience, aligns very much with the people I knew, people in my family, the people growing up. And it is a cussedness, right? It is a, a an opposition to the way so when we looked at uh covid vaccination rates there were two groups of people in america that were the slowest to be vaccinated it was urban black america and it was hillbillies right it was appalachia uh and poor whites especially in appalachia why because they both have, for good reason, cultural mistrust of the government uh, and mistrusting the government and mistrusting people in authority. Uh, you don't have to do too, you don't have to do too much research to say, oh, man, that was not that was that didn't work out well for you. Um, and that set hard setting your jaw hard against elites and people in power and what you're supposed to do is really great it it um it adds such an important element to american life right having a couple of groups of people that say not so fast right now that uh, it's the tr conse the consequences are often tragic like refusing the advice of public health officials but the cussedness is a necessary component of americanism right that you know what we're going to do it. Th this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it this way. And it's a really important part. However, when it comes to finding the success ladder for individuals, if you don't want to be a sellout and you don't want to go along and, you know, in West Virginia, basically, the story of West Virginia is um, Montani, Semper Liberi, Mountaineers are always free. Uh, folks who broke off from Virginia because Virginia broke off from the United States uh, over slavery and the 55 Western counties didn't have any slaves to speak of. And they said, we'll not because they saw their future in industry. Right. They were looking west to the Ohio Valley, not east to Richmond. And uh, it persisted in this way for a long time. But then as the Industrial Revolution picked up speed into West Virginia came a lot of uh, Southern and Eastern European immigrants, right? The, the um, antecedents of Senator Joe Manchin. Um, and people came in, especially to North Central West Virginia, Fairmont, Clarksburg, Morgantown, um, but also into the coal fields in the, in the Southern part of the state. Lots of these Ellis Island kind of uh, new Americans came in and it changed the polity of the state 
into being the perfect New Deal state. Basically, it was the it was the it was the West Virginia. West Virginia had been stoutly Republican for a long time, and when it flipped in 1932, it stayed flipped. West Virginia voted Democrat for so long. My favorite thing to remind people about how politics change. In 1988, West Virginia voted for Michael Dukakis. <laughs> Right. So that's not that's not like, oh, they were late to shift. Right. They, yeah. Oh, because you look at southern well, and, states. And Carl Rove said, don't talk to me about West Virginia and the 2000 race. Right. You know? Yes. Yeah. And it was and the fact that West Virginia and Tennessee flipped Republican because they had with withstood the and, and this has to do with segregation. Uh, West Virginia does not have a, any kind of substantial African-American population. Segregation had not been a driving issue in West Virginia. West Virginia had been driven by industrial policy. Labor uh, was the was the driving force in West Virginia. And there was a large as, as a matter of fact. The reason the Kennedys chose West Virginia to show their strength, they wanted to sh- Kennedy wanted to show his strength in what they said was a southern Protestant state. In 1960, West Virginia, West Virginia is never a southern state. West Virginia is an Appalachian state. Um, but that they and it is certainly was certainly not a Protestant state in the way that it that it once was, because the Roman Catholic population in the Ohio Valley and in the uh, um northwestern part of, uh, northeastern part of the state was enormous so it was perfect it looked like a southern state to outside eyes but it was winnable especially if you were handing out fifty dollars and pints of uh, old crow uh to the willing voters so west virginia's polity changed and it has substantially changed back is i guess how i would put it um the core attitude of west virginia about Cussedness, and this is across Appalachia. Cussedness, agenderism, uh, and oppositionally arranged. Uh, to be a people who are oppositionally arranged is. I have two sons. They their characters are their own, but also they have been defined in opposition to what the other one likes and does. So they choose. They unconsciously they're choosing interests and likes to reject what their sibling they love each other but they mm-hmm. they want their own well they identity. have to differentiate themselves from one another absolutely exactly yeah. so oppositional definition is a huge part so what you you ask yourself what does a college educated elite east coast human being want and then do the opposite okay so you do the opposite uh <clears throat> you know it it isn't uh, it isn't just uh, a, a question of kind of like individual outcomes, right? It's a, um, you know, companies when they make decisions about where they're going to build and where they're going to expand will always say the human capital is the most important factor, right? They will. Uh, I did not until just recently learn that they have a very, uh, they have a very um, quick, convenient um uh, sort of rule of thumb about how to measure that, how to measure human capital. And they simply look at the prevalence of four-year degrees in a community and say, you know, either we can or we cannot consider this location uh, for an expansion of our business. Uh, uh, you know, you can't get a Trader Joe's into certain communities if you don't have enough college degrees. Uh, and um, and so this this isn't just a question for individuals. It really is a community level question as well. Like this differentiation, the choosing the other path, the rejecting of this the you know sort of the uh, uh, I don't even call it elite. It just rejection of kind of the middle class norms of like I'm going to get a call you know. I'm assuming that I'm going to college, uh, you know, rejecting these things um, really has enduring consequences for communities uh, as well as individuals. And I'm really like befuddled by what's the right strategy for trying to talk about this, because, 
you know, the Biden administration says, well, it's, you know, it's industrial policy. If we just like focus on getting the right kinds of jobs back into these communities, then we'll we'll fix the problem. Well, we've got a lot of these jobs in those communities already, and they're not they're empty. You know, they can't find people um, who are willing to take them. And it's sort of a kind of a reductionist um, approach to all of this is economic. And I, it, I don't think it is all economic. Uh, so I just react to that. You know, this isn't just a, a, a problem or question for individuals. Communities struggle from this as well. There's a Toyota plant in uh, Buffalo, West Virginia, and it has been an extraordinary success. Uh, it has been a great, great story. And when that Toyota plant opened, and I think they make Lexi uh, there uh, engines, but what, whatever, whatever they make there, it was an extraordinary success. And the impulse was, well, let's replicate this again and again and again. Why, why don't we just keep doing it? There are a bunch of answers, but one of the big answers is, if you don't have a workforce that can stay sober and show up, it it's not the the individuals cannot. We've we've I remember George Bush came to West Virginia uh, one time to talk about um, community and technical college and his initiative around community and technical colleges and we've got to do it and we've got to sync up the uh, workforce production with the industrial needs so that we can partner. With, so that, that localities and states can partner with employers to bring new jobs with the promise that this pipeline will exist to take people out of high school and into the workforce. But I will tell you that by the time you are old enough to decide whether or not you want to go to community and technical college so that you can learn how to go work in a cabinet plant, um, several choices have already been made. Many of the choices have not been made by you. Many of the choices have been made by your parents and your grandparents about what kind of world you will inhabit and how you will live. And the basic middle class, um, boring virtues of good citizenship and a good and good life, um, have fallen by the wayside we could think of a lot of reasons why there are we could we could talk about a lot of reasons why uh, we could talk about Eleanor Roosevelt. You know, there's a town in West Virginia called Eleanor uh, named for Eleanor Roosevelt. And do you know what it was? It was a project. It was a model city that was going to be built in which the federal government would fund housing projects in Appalachia and get these mountaineers off of their hillsides and bring them in where they could obtain better services, right? They could get better health care and better schools because they would be easier to serve because they would be brought out of the hollers where they lived and come and do that. Well, how did that work? It worked about as well there as it did for black America uh, in Cabrini Green in Chicago and the other disastrous housing projects uh, that we saw in big cities in the 1960s. Uh, Ro- the Robert Moses of Appalachia worked about as well as it did uh, everywhere else. And the introduction of welfare into Appalachia, the introduction of the dole, right? Um, My friend Kevin Williamson's book, Big White Ghetto, uh, is should be required reading for anybody thinking about this kind of stuff. And what you see as you, you know, Kevin basically drives through He's a he's a redneck, not a hillbilly, but he gets it. He understands um, he there's there's a um, a vignette as he's talking about being at, at one of these country stores and out on the uh, front porch of the store are all of these cases of soda um, or as I would say, if I were being if, yeah, I, if I, I were being story. right, I, I would say pop. Um, and when Kevin was writing about, uh, all of this and, uh, I, I remembered it as Mountain Dew, but Kevin corrected me. It's Pepsi and obviously no one should drink Pepsi, uh, (laughs) ever. Uh, so it would make sense that it would go to some other purpose. Uh, but the 
the stuff was there on that poor. And I knew why it was there when he was writing about it. Most Americans don't, which is it's currency that you can buy soda with food stamps and then you can basically sell it back to this store. Right. And it you can get a little money in your pocket off of uh, aid to dependent families. You can get a little you can you can squeeze a little something out of the arbitrage of Pepsi and the in 19 we talk about 1960 when I think it was David Brinkley came to West Virginia. There's a, I've been to the I've been to the place uh, going over this rickety bridge uh, into it was uh, I believe it's in Cabell County, but it's in Western near the Tug River in western west virginia uh and about the scourge of these and let me just say here a word about um poverty porn uh and after the frontier closed and the authors of penny dreadfuls of the of the dime store the the the, uh, reality tv of their day didn't have any more Doc Holliday's or Wyatt Earps uh, to write about. You know what they wrote about? They wrote about Appalachian squalor was very popular. The reason we know about the Hatfields and the McCoys is because it was pulp. The people in the cities loved it. Look at these benighted hillbillies. They're arguing over a pig. Uh, they're do- uh, and, and down, this is again down in southwestern West Virginia. That's Mingo County, uh, Devil Ants, Hatfield, uh, and the boys from the uh, West Virginia side, uh, and Colonel McCoy, uh, and the other folks from the other side. And all of that stuff, there was, a, there was an, an exploitation movie made in the 50s or 60s. And it was called Common Law Cabin. Dirt floors and steam heat was the was the tagline for it. So the hillbillies in the mist phenomenon of um, urban America, uh, non-Appalachian America, peering down their nose, looking in on look at these people. Down, can you imagine? Well, the war on poverty stuff from the Kennedy and Johnson era was a kinder version of that, but the same thing. Look at these people here. Look at these people here. Now, if you're from there, do you know what you think? What city could I go into and find it just as bad or worse, right? You all come here and talk about, Eleanor Roosevelt comes down here and talks about you poor, poor people. Well, let's go take a look at how things are in Washington, D.C., or let's take a look at how things are in Hell's Kitchen, or let's, let's look and see how it's going elsewhere. But because of the strong cultural identification of Appalachia and poverty, this leads to we're going to declare war on poverty. We're going to we're really going to focus on these folks here. Uh, And the results were really bad. The results were really, really bad because underneath what the basis of that cussedness uh, that we're talking about is the family. Right. The core the core unit uh, in when we when we think about. Uh, Appalachia, when we think about the Scots-Irish, when we think about all that stuff, one of the markers was they were going into a war zone, right? When when these first people went through the Cumberland Gap uh, and these people went west, they were going into the front lines of a war. Uh, It was a war with uh, the indigenous peoples of the Ohio Valley and of Appalachia. And they were, that's what they were doing. And unlike most people who fight wars, they took their families with them, right? And that's why uh, there's a statue in my hometown called Madonna of the Trails. And it is a woman in her skirts, and she is leading, she is leading her family westward. She's leading her, she's taking them onward. Uh, and that strong core family unit, right? Um, anything that would degrade the value of that core family unit uh, is going to be very dangerous in a community that is also based on cussed individuality. So if you don't have the softening elements of religion and strong families, if all you are is against stuff, right, then what are you going to be for? And if you don't have 
intact families and you don't have uh, civic virtue uh, reinforced through worship and through those ways. Uh, high school football is real cool, but it's not enough, right? Um, these these other institutions that have sprung up, and a lot of what we see about the tribal politics of the region now are a replacement for those things, right? It's it's a, a the the lunatic partisanship, the intense anger, is a manifestation of other healthier attachments. Uh, in a being put forward in a disordered way. When I look at the uh, you know the rallies, the MAGA rallies, not just in Appalachia, but really almost anywhere in the country, they look like revival meetings to me. Uh, they look like this is religion. Uh, this is uh, this is that same ecstatic experience um, that would have previously. You know, that attachment to the transcendent, the ecstatic experience of that, something that would have happened in churches and is now, you know, uh, at at political rallies. And uh, and so that need, I think you're absolutely right, that need for connection that people receive through have traditionally received through these religious communities and other non-governmental civic kinds of connections uh, are really now. Uh, almost entirely dependent upon uh, politics. Sports plays an extraordinarily important role, um, and it's a, it's a it's a mixed blessing. Um, who are the most famous West Virginians? Uh, Chuck Yeager. This is good. This is good. Uh, Chuck Yeager is is a good role model to put out for people. Um, uh, Jerry West. Zeke from Cabin Creek, uh, the greatest clutch basketball player in history, uh, the yeah. Mr. Logo, Mary Lou Retton. Um, the uh, w- you get to sports pretty fast, and um, the I, I guess um, oh, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Who was the CEO of Cisco for a long time? Um, but mostly. If you ask West Virginians about who their idols are, if you ask young West Virginians who their idols are, uh, Randy Moss is going to be a lot uh, closer to the top of the list than the former CEO of Cisco. And the, the power that sports has in these places, and again, some of it's very good because it is community. Going to a West Virginia high school football game on a Friday night, packed out, uh, there are more people... If you go to a WVU football game, home game, and it's a sellout, there are more people at Mountaineer Field in Milan Pushkar Stadium uh, than there are in any city in the whole state. It is this this gathering. And just like church, we sing along at the end, right? We sing Take Me Home, Country Roads. By the way, you'll note that all the best songs about Appalachia, or most of the best songs about Appalachia, are about missing Appalachia. Country Roads, Take Me Home. To the place I belong. I don't belong here in the city. I belong back in West Virginia with you uh, in Kentucky. What's Blue Kentucky Girl about? You've had to leave the you've had to leave the good life here in the holler to go find work, uh, and I'll still be here for you. Your Blue Kentucky Girl. And it's amazing how pervasive that nostalgia is. It's not just for people in Appalachia, actually. Right. You know, this is beloved America. This is not overlooked America, forgotten America. It is beloved America. This is very deep in our DNA as a country to love uh, these these places like Appalachia who have generated so much culture for us. Right. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a joke that that you are uniquely situated to appreciate knowing as you do about the Appalachian das, uh, uh, diaspora uh, and of the in, into the industrial Midwest. We uh, we call um, Interstate 77 that basically runs from Cleveland to Charlotte, the Hillbilly Highway, because you're going to find work going one way or the other on 77. Uh, and uh, so the story goes that a guy passes on, passes away and goes on to his reward. And as he's getting his tour of heaven, uh, St. Peter's taking him around and they go over hill and go over dale and it's beautiful. But they come over one rise and down in this valley are a bunch of guys in leg irons. And 
the the new the new uh, resident of heaven says to Saint Peter, "Hey, I don't want to complain. This is all great." But you say this is heaven. How come those guys are shackled down there? And he says, oh, those are the West Virginians. If we don't chain them up, they try to go home on the weekends. <laughs> and the the idea of there, there's a um, the story of Appalachia is a story about leaving to work. It's not a story mm-hmm. about finding a way to be entrepreneurial where you are. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. a story, you know, of the people who I, my graduating high school graduating class of, I believe, 53 human beings. I don't know that any of them or certainly not more than a handful are still in West Virginia. I don't have any relatives who live in West Virginia, Pittsburgh. Yes. Uh, but nobody lives in West Virginia. And the, the, the idea of being a place where you are from, but not a place where you work and where you grow and where you invest in the future. And the, that nostalgic component, West Virginia has two official state songs. One is uh, Almost Heaven, West Virginia by John Denver. But the other one is uh, the West Virginia Hills. And the West Virginia Hills, which has been the state song for 100 years or whatever, is about the same thing. I left and how I wish I was there. And mm. that brokenheartedness about we can't do it here and we'll have to go someplace else to do it um, is corrosive to the idea of we're going to invest and build here. This is a, a land of opportunity. And I think like a sore tooth, um, it's hard for people not to touch, right? It's hard for people not to touch because of that nostalgia and because of that powerful feeling of how it used to be. Um, and if there is not, you know, I think that the simplest answer for me in a lot of this stuff is if you've never seen anybody do it, how would you know to do it yourself? Yeah. If you've never yeah. seen anybody do it, how would you know how to do it yourself? And if you were yeah. if you grew up in Tridelphia, West Virginia, and you'd never seen anybody go to college or you'd never seen anybody start a business and you that was just not what was going on and your choices were basically there's one path to uh jail. Uh there's a path to uh, an addiction. Uh there's a path to sort of scratching out a living with some government assistance uh, and and living in a trailer somewhere and, and trying to sort of get by. There's a path to getting a government job, right? You could be a bus, you could be a school bus driver. You could do you could do some of that stuff. But who are the successful people? The successful people left. That's who succeeded. The successful people who who succeeds the people who get away and they get out. There's a story Maybe it's apocryphal, but it's too, as we would say in the news business, too good to check um, about Clark Gable, who came from Cadiz, Ohio, which is just across the river from West Virginia in a very similar part of the world. And um, after he had become very famous and very important, uh, the, the community of Cadiz, this little coal camp, decided they would build a statue in his honor. But they couldn't get a hold of Clark Gable, who they wanted to come back for the unveiling of the statue. So finally, they sent a delegation to Hollywood to find Clark Gable. And they they went to his home and they Mr. Gable was was summoned eventually to come to the door to talk to them. And they told him about it. And he was horrified. He said, I did everything I could to get the hell out of that town. And it makes me so sad to think that any likeness of me will be stuck there for eternity and slam the door in their face. And that kind of thinking of uh, you have to escape to succeed, the brain drain part of this is really, really real. If what you want for the next generation, for young people, is to escape, not invest, you'll, you, you never get there, right? You never get there, and it becomes harder and harder to create escape trajectories for subsequent generations because the present human capital of people to be school teachers, to be coaches to be leaders to set good examples in the community to put people on the right path of the success sequence it gets harder and harder to find those people yeah so we need this is so fascinating and i i love it because uh you know this is this is my story in in some ways with family who you know i descend on both sides from appalachia my grandfather was from a town called Rennick 
um, which is a postage stamp somewhere uh, in the sort of south uh, east part of the state, um, and uh, and and so uh, I, I, for somebody who grew up there, somebody who really um, you know has thought a lot about the state, if if you were made king of policy and of uh, you know policy and preaching for um for west virginia what are some of the things that you would do um to sort of interrupt this uh this this brain drain cultural spiral that is affecting um affecting the state well first i've been to rennick and it's very beautiful there it is one of the, the, the of all of the the beautiful places in the world uh that part of west virginia is shot whenever i have taken people to that part of the world they are stunned to know that something that gorgeous uh exists so close to the east coast it's amazing um so west virginia has done something really worthwhile uh, in the period of time between the so West Virginia didn't switch parties uh, it just they just switched jerseys basically uh, it, as personified by the governor of the state who was a de- got elected as a Democrat and then became a Republican he didn't change his policies he didn't become a different person he just said he was playing for a different team um, but in the moment where West Virginia where its politics were in transition a really remarkable piece of educational reform legislation made it through. I don't think it would make it through now. Um, but in that moment of potentiality where there was political competition and there were still a bunch of normal Republicans or conservatives around, um, the uh, it happened. And create school choice is a term that gets thrown around a great deal. But and it gets thrown when we think about school choice, we mostly are talking about uh, ur- the, the, the story that's put forward usually by advocates of school choice is about failed urban schools. But there is no place in the world that benefits more from innovation in how you educate people than places like Rennick, West Virginia. Right. You don't have that many kids. One of the tragedies of West Virginia and its story was school consolidation that took place in the 19 my my uh sister-in-law to get from where she lived on a dairy farm uh in ohio county west virginia to the public high school was she had to ride in a bus for an hour that's not good that (laughs) that doesn't help anybody um distance learning and remote learning and um scalable ways of doing this and technology can help an extraordinary amount so i think embracing school reform is essential west virginia has done a big piece of it and they should they should lean into it um that's extraordinarily important Uh, the other thing if i were and what did you say i was i could i could preach and i could have laws yeah you got paul yeah policy and preaching what what's the exhortation I, the the the, ex, the exhortation is bloom where you're planted. Mm-hmm. Um, it the the idea that you know I have a tendency to be the human nature is to is to say if only mm-hmm. if only X Y Z would happen then I could be happy if only these other things would take place then we could have what we want and the amount of resentment. The chip on the shoulder that many people in Appalachia have, it's not our fault. That, By the way, what's the a big central appeal of MAGAism in West Virginia, of populism in general? Uh, what, whichever party is wearing the hat is these people did this to you. It mm. wouldn't be this way if those people didn't do this to you. And what that is is permission to fail. You have given yeah. people permission to fail because you say it's the Chinese, it's immigrants, yeah. it's the elites, it's, it's these it's other to people. Fail, it's to fail and to be angry. Yep. You know, it's it's low grade conspiracism mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, somebody has done this to us and we need then we need 
we need to fix it, but we also need revenge. And, um, and no one is coming to fix it for you. No politician yeah. of any party is going to come and fix it. You, this is an inside job. You will have to do this for yourself. If you want this, if you want the good life, if you want prosperity, if you want decent, safe, healthy communities, you will have to build them. And uh, to, to uh, my, my exhortation, my policy would be fix, lean in heavy on educational reform. Be innovative on education. That'd be number one for policy. Number one for exhortation is get, knock the chip off your shoulder and bloom where you're planted. Do you and quit thinking about why you can't do it. Quit thinking about whose fault it is that things are the way that they are. This is where you are. And by the way... You are in a place, if you live in Appalachia, you are in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Mm-hmm. You are, it's, uh, the, the climate is beautiful. The life is beautiful. The, it is a, a gorgeous. You live in a place where now rich people are scrambling to go buy their country rural retreats to be away from the maddening, maddening crowd. You, you, you are there already. So make your little paradise out of your mm-hmm. corner of the world. Well, I will just say amen to that. Uh, That's a great exhortation uh, and um, something that's actionable for everyone, uh, no matter where they are. So, Chris Darywalt, I so appreciate all this time you gave us uh, today to help us understand better some of the challenges that that we're interested in as uh, both of us here at at AEI um, under our American Dream Initiative and other activities that we've got going at the Institute. We want we want to help where we can, uh, but I think that this insight that you've just articulated about the best help is the stuff that's going to come from within uh, is really, really important as we um, as as we attend as we extend a hand. Uh, we have to realize that uh, that. There has to be a hand extended on the other side, and we can't we can't substitute for that. Um, that that's got to we got to start there. So, thanks again for coming on, and hopefully, sometime in the future, we'll have a chance to chat again. Well, now that I know that you're a hillbilly, uh, <laughs> I I hold you in even higher esteem. So, uh, so thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.